please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll be looking at the last section in the last chapter of 2 Thessalonians, verses 6 through 18. Pastor Owen and I are preaching through the Thessalonians, the two epistles to the Thessalonians. We're going to begin next week with 1 Timothy and go through 1 and 2 Timothy through the rest of this year. And then we'll wrap up early next year with the book of Titus. And so we're kind of working our way through this section of the New Testament. But today we come to this final section in 2 Thessalonians. I'll begin reading in verse 6. Hear the word of God. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be shamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Did you ever wonder, when did the idea of an eight-hour workday and a five-day work week begin? Where did that come from? That in our culture tends to be assumed as the minimal of what a work week looks like, five eight-hour workdays in a week. Well, it's interesting that it actually didn't really start to take form until it was kicked around as an idea in the late 1800s. Before that time, of course, cultures were generally agricultural cultures, and those of you who work in an agricultural type job, you know that that tends to be a job that starts when you wake up and ends when you go to bed. But as the Industrial Revolution took hold in the late 1800s, they started to think about, well, what's a reasonable balance of work and family and life? And in the late 1800s, they came up with this idea, started kicking it around of having eight-hour work days and five days a week. But it didn't become the standard for our society until the 1920s, because that's when Henry Ford implemented it as the work week in the Ford Motor Company. And because of that, it became the standard in most jobs, five, eight-hour work days. I tell you about this because it's relevant now, because I keep hearing off and on about a move to a four-day work week. As a matter of fact, some of you have even had jobs, maybe, that move from five, eight-hour work days to four, 10-hour work days, so you have the same amount of hours, just only in four days. 
But that's honestly not where the theory's going. There's actually, I've heard about, I was reading an article about a company in New Zealand that has tried to implement a four-day, eight-hour workday week. In other words, instead of working five eight-hour days, they only work four eight-hour days. But the kicker to it is that they're not reducing the pay of the workers at all. They're paying the same amount as they were paying them for 40 hours as they're paying them for 32 hours. And what they're finding is, and what their hope was, is that the motivation of having a three days weekend or three days off from work would motivate them to work harder, more efficiently, more productively in four days than they were working in five. And so they literally are getting, 30, getting 40 hours of work done in 32 hours. And what they're finding, the preliminary results, as reading about in the article, says that the workers are happier and they're more productive. It's working in that setting anyway. It goes to show that it's not only about how many hours you work, but how you use those hours in your work. Now, let me say, I'm not for or against a four-day work week, especially since I only work one day a week. <laughs> At least that's what I hear. But I am very concerned if moving to a four-day work week means that we think that we only need to be productive for four days a week and then idle consumers for three days a week. If that's where we're headed, then I'm not in favor of it because I say that's against God's design for who we are and what we're here to do. On the other hand, if having an extra day off means you're all going to serve in the church more, then I'm all for it. Our culture is confused about the meaning and purpose of work. And that confusion has infected the church as well. The church always struggles to not think like the culture around it. And that's certainly true when it comes to work. In the culture, but also in the church, you're gonna find people who are workaholics. People who would hate the idea of a four-day work week because they need to work seven days and to work 80 hours a week in order to feel like they have meaning and purpose in their life. Work is a God for them. They live to work. But then there are also in the church and in the culture people who we would call lazy. People who would be happy to win a big lottery prize this week so that they never had to work a day in their life again. For them, work is their devil, not their God. They live to avoid work, not they don't live to work, and they live to party and play. Both extremes are wrong, dead wrong. Our work relates to our identity. Who are we? Who, who am I as a person? My work is important to that. It's reflected when you meet somebody and you want to get to know them. What's the first question you usually ask them? What do you do for a living? Because what a person does in their work is a big part of who they are. But for some people, the work that they do is the center of who they are. It's the core of their identity. Matter of fact, they don't have an identity outside of their work. That's the workaholic. But for other people, the idea of work is outside of their identity. <laughs> doesn't have anything with their own sense of who they are, doesn't relate to who they see themselves as being. And to them, work is something from the outside that's imposed upon them that they try to get rid of as much as possible so that they can have fun. 
God's word opposes both. God's word teaches us that our work, what we do in our lives, is very important to our identity. But the difference is, it's not the core of our identity. It's not the foundation of who we are. And that makes all the difference in the world. There was a lot of confusion about work in the church in Thessalonica in the first century. We've seen this. We already saw it back in 1 Thessalonians. Back there, we saw that there were some, we talked about it just briefly in 1 Thessalonians, that there were some in that church in Thessalonica that got so excited about Paul's teaching about the second coming of Christ. To them, it's like Christ is coming soon. He's going to come maybe next week or maybe in a couple weeks or maybe next year. And to them, it was like winning the biggest lottery of all. You know, like, I don't need to worry about my future. I don't need to work. I don't need to store up. I don't need to provide. Christ is coming again. So they quit their jobs. And then as Christ didn't return in the next day or week or months or years, they started living off of other believers. They became a charity case. But they were okay with that because they were so spiritual, looking for the coming of Christ. They were... As we see here in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, they were beginning to depend upon the other believers for their living. They were not just loafers, they were leeches. They were drawing down the resources of the church as they were refusing to work. And so Paul addresses the issue here in the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians in the strongest language possible. I hope you picked up on that as we read through it. He uses very strong language in addressing the whole church, the whole Christian community in Thessalonica, saying, you need to address this. This is a serious problem. Think about it. This short book of 2 Thessalonians really only deals with two things. Their wrong understanding about the second coming of Christ, and they're the people that were loafing in their midst and not working. And he uses very strong language. Let me read verse 6 to you again. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. He's saying to the church family, this is a serious problem in your church. Deal with it. Confront it. Stop turning a blind eye to it. And Paul here invokes his full cosmic authority as an apostle. He is a spokesman for Jesus Christ. And he says, I command you, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. That word command, he uses that word in the Greek four times in this chapter. Paul uses strong words because these brothers had already been warned repeatedly. We know that, taking these two books together, these two epistles, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians and 2nd Thessalonians. Put them together and you realize they had been warned repeatedly to get to work. Paul had given this instruction in person. Look at verse 10 that we read just a moment ago. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. They had already been confronted about what they were doing when Paul was there at the very beginning, just as the church was getting established. But then Paul had sent Timothy and Timothy would have reiterated this teaching. And then Paul wrote the second letter. 
or actually he wrote the first letter, before he wrote the second letter, he wrote the first letter in writing in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Listen to what he said to them in the first epistle. He said, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he'd already written. Now he's writing a second time to address the same issue. It's not been dealt with. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he was very specific. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. So the whole community had been commanded to deal with it. And these idol people had been told to repent. And they hadn't, after repeated warnings. And so Paul's getting serious here in this chapter. Paul talks about them rejecting the traditions that he had given to them back at the end of verse six. They're not walking in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Now, you remember last week, if you were here, I said when Paul talks about tradition here in 2 Thessalonians, he's not talking about man-made teachings based on the Bible. He's actually talking about the truths that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to him so that he could pass it on to the churches. So we're talking about revealed truth here from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's calling tradition. So, he said, you're not walking according to the traditions that I gave you, the teachings from Christ, the biblical truth that I gave you and taught you. You're not walking according to it. So let's take a moment before we look at what Paul commands here. Let's take a moment to think about what those traditions would have been. These are Greek, mostly Gentile, new believers that Paul has taught carefully and discipled. And particularly had taught them about the role and purpose of work. What would he have taught them? What is work and why do we do it? Well, first of all, remember that Thessalonica was in the northern part of the nation of Greece. Part of the Roman Empire, but part of the ancient nation of Greece. And so the Thessalonians would have been raised and would work and would fellowship and play. They would, all their life would be in the context of this Greek culture. So what did the Greek culture think about work? Well, it's interesting, if you go back to Greek mythology, because Greek mythology was their religion, and their religion determined their philosophy, and their philosophy determined their view of work. And so you go back to the mythology of, of ancient Greece, and it taught that there was a golden age in the beginning, where the gods and men dwelt in harmony. And in that golden age, these Greek gods and men and, the, and what they taught was that they, they didn't need to work that the earth provided everything they needed abundantly without any real effort, and so work wasn't necessary. But work came in later ages. As things progressed and degraded, things got worse, and so work became a necessary evil. And it's interesting, Plato and Aristotle, the great philosophers of ancient Greek culture, they taught that the, that the lower masses of people, the majority of people, had to do the dirty work, kind of like the drones of society. They had to do the, the, the dirtiness of work so that the elite could pursue the pure exercises of the mind, so that they could sit around and have grapes fed to them and they could talk about philosophy and art and politics. That's what the elite in the society were supposed to do. Aristotle, to give you a quote from the philosopher Aristotle himself, he said, we work, speaking of the massive Greek culture, we work in order to have leisure 
on which happiness depends. Sounds kind of familiar. Or, in the words of the great philosophers of the early 1980s, the band Loverboy, everybody is working for the weekend. I don't think Aristotle meant the same thing that Loverboy meant, but the idea is similar. So in Greek culture, generally speaking, work was despised. Matter of fact, they taught that work was fit only for slaves. If you've wondered what that might look like in a more modern culture, or closer to modern culture, ever watched Downton Abbey? Exact same idea. The mass of humanity works below level so that the elite, the nobility in the English culture could sit around and read books and play cards and talk about important things. That's the Greek view. And that's the view that the Thessalonians were schooled in. That was the cultural pressure on them. Work is dirty, work is a necessary evil at best. But Paul came and he brought them the truth of the scriptures. What would Paul have taught them that was contrary to the cultural view? Well, first of all, he would have given them a picture of what the scriptures teach us about what work was before sin entered the picture. The universe, according to God's word, the universe begins with work. It's the very first thing you encounter in the first chapter of Genesis is that history, the universe, begins with work, the work of God in creation. Contrary to what the pagans believed and taught, the universe isn't the result of conflict among the gods or some cosmic accident. It is the majestic work of a master artist and architect. And God intentionally did his work in six days and then rested on the seventh day so that his work would be a pattern for our lives. That we would work six days and then set aside one day to rest and worship him. God created man in his image, which means that God created man to be a worker. God created man to be a creator with the gifts and abilities and dreams and resources that he provides. God created man to be a provider for other human beings and for the creation. God created man to be a scientist and a manager of his creation. In Genesis 1, it tells us that God created man in his image to take dominion over the earth and its creatures, to rule, to manage. And then in Genesis 2, he says that man is placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It is important to our identity that this was the original intent for us before sin ever entered the picture. We were created to be godly. And to be godly is to be a worker. To be godly is to be a creative worker and a wise manager and a steward of God's creation. And according to scripture, work is a calling. We talk about our vocation. The word vocation, we just think of it as a synonym for job. The word vocation comes from the Latin word to call. That's a 
strong philosophical statement when you call your job your vocation. You're saying, I am called to do this. God has spoken and called me to do what he has uniquely prepared me, equipped me, trained me, and given me a passion to do. I am called to this. This is my vocation. And I want to say that as just a side word to those of you I know in this university community where many of us are thinking about our calling in life, our job, our career, our education as it leads to that calling. And let me just remind you, it is a calling, it is a vocation, which means that that's your first priority when you think about what job you're going to take. What is God calling me to do? What has God prepared me to do? What has God equipped me to do? Don't make your first priority what the salary is for that job. Don't make what your, fir your first priority what the location is of that job. Don't make it your first priority what the title is of that job or the upward mobility of that job. Your first priority is what has God called you to? It is your vocation. And certainly it's broader than just what you do from nine to five, five days a week. But the important point here is that Paul would have communicated to these confused Thessalonians that, that, that if there had never been any sin, if there had never been any fall, if there had never been any rebellion, work would still be an integral part of who we are. We are created to work after the image of our creator. We need work. Think about that. We need work the same way we need food and drink. We need work the same way we need rest. We need work the same way we need friendship. It's built into us from the point of creation. And if we deny that need, if we resist that need, if we reject that need, it is to our detriment. But then Paul certainly would have gone beyond Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about what work is now. Work since the fall of man. Work after Adam and Eve's sin. Because Genesis 3 tells us about the curse that came upon man and woman and the curse that came upon the creation as a result of their rejection of God's authority, their rebellion, and their turning from the light to the darkness. And what we find there in Genesis 3 is that we're still supposed to work after the fall. Work is still an important part of who we are after the fall, but... It's going to be with sweat, it's going to be with pain, it's going to be with toil, and it's going to be with frustration and conflict. The earth will still produce food, but it's also going to produce massive thorns and thistles along with it. Work is going to be hard, work is going to be suffering. Matter of fact, if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, it gives a picture of what work is like after the fall, work under the curse, if there's no grace of God. Remember, the writer of Ecclesiastes takes a look at all the important aspects of life under the sun. He just hypothetically assumes what would life be like under the sun if there is no God over the sun, if God did not exist, if there was no grace, if this fallen world is all we have to live with. That's how he looks at life, and he looks at work. And when he looks at work, he comes to three conclusions, basically, as you look at what he says in those chapters that deal with work. He says, first of all, work under the sun, work under the curse, 
is making us miserable because of the stress and responsibility of it. We cannot succeed. We are always frustrated. Secondly, he says that death, the ultimate curse, will come to all of us, and therefore what we produce will be lost in the end. No matter how productive we are before death, when death comes, we lose it all. And then thirdly, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, unworthy people are gonna come after us and they're gonna inherit whatever, whatever we have produced and they're gonna squander it all. That's a very dark picture of work under the curse and the wrath of God. Work under the sun, work under the curse of God is a lot like going back to Greek mythology, go back to the god Sisyphus. You remember what he, he was condemned to do? The, the Greek god Sisyphus was condemned to roll a huge stone up the side of the hill, and as soon as he get to the top, it would roll back to the bottom. Sounds like your job on a bad day, doesn't it? But Paul wouldn't have stopped there. Paul came preaching the gospel. The gospel tells us that God, the Son, the eternal Son of God, came and added to his divine nature a human nature and became the perfect worker, even though he worked in this fallen world under the curse among sinners like we do, he worked perfectly. And he went to the cross, and there did his greatest work. There's where he did the work of redemption where he hung on the cross and took the penalty, took the wrath, took the curse of God that our sins deserve, our rebellion, our laziness, our workaholism. He took all that upon himself and he died in our place so that we wouldn't need to be punished by God. He took the punishment on himself. And those who believe that he died for their sins and that he was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, are cleansed, made new, washed clean. No more shame, no more guilt over the ways in which we failed in our work as well as the ways in which we failed in every other area of life. We are made new creatures. We are being transformed back into the image of God at this point. That's what sanctification is. That's the work of redemption. Christ has gone to the right hand of God in heaven. He has sent his Holy Spirit, and he is working to transform us into what we were originally intended to be in the Garden of Eden. And part of that, a very important part of that, is being a Christ-like worker. To once again create in the image of God to his glory, to once again provide and manage and steward and study in the name of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so it's in that context that Paul addresses these lazy, idle Christians in the church in Thessalonica. And he addresses them in light of the traditions that he had handed down about what work was intended to be and what sin has done to it and what Christ is undoing through his work of redemption. And so it's in that context that he addresses what we all must do, which is to confront the sin of idleness. We talk about the fourth commandment. Fourth commandment is about what? About the Lord's day about a day of rest. One day out of seven, we should rest. But did you ever notice that that's only half of the command of the fourth commandment? What's the other half? Work six days. 
We're commanded to work six days, to be productive for six days. And that doesn't mean necessarily in your primary vocation. We have a lot of secondary vocations. But to be productive for six days and then to rest one day. We are commanded to work. And it's in that context that Paul addresses those who are being idle. And it's interesting in verse 6, the word he uses there for idle, it's, it's actually, that's a bit of an interpretation. A direct translation, a more literal translation would be disorderly. They're being disorderly. Now, the reason they put idleness there is because from context, we know that that was the particular sin that was causing all the disorder that they were causing in the church. But this is a serious sin. Again, Paul addresses this. He gives serious attention and serious authority to addressing this because it was really hurting the church. And there's three elements of the disorderliness here. One, first of all, it begins with their refusing to work. The second aspect of the disorderliness is that they were being a burden to others. They were living off the charity of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then thirdly, they were being busybodies, he says in verse 11. There's actually a play on words there that works in both the Greek and the English. That he basically is saying, you're busy, but you're busy meddling. You're being busy bodies. You're working, but you're not working at work. You're working at meddling in the lives of others and disrupting the lives of others. And an interesting idea is that possibly what they were doing in all their free time, since they weren't working, they were running around from house to house trying to convince other Christians to stop working like they had. And they were causing a great disruption in the church. We don't know, but in some ways they were interfering in the lives of others. And they were living, they were leeches living off the generosity of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says here, they've been warned enough. He says, we need to take it to the next level. And interesting, his first command is not to the, to the lazy people, the loafers. His first command is to the whole body, the whole community of believers. And he says to them that they are to keep away from the idle brothers. He says that if they don't accept the warning of that letter, they are, in, in verse 11, he goes on to say, or no, verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in the letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Now, this is not total shunning in the Mennonite sense of the word. It's, it's a distancing. It's a recognition of the separation that's being caused by the unrepentant sin after many, many warnings that the disruption that's causing in the relationships in the church. And so he's speaking to the believers in general saying, pull back. Don't allow this person to continue in their sin. These people Hold them accountable. That's what it means to become a member of a church. You are now being held accountable by the community of believers. You're not on your own. And Paul, in the midst of this interesting, he gives a simple rule, something he said, I taught you this rule when I was there. I'm going to remind you of it now in verse 10. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. We followed this principle literally in my home as I was raising children. Seriously. If a child was unwilling to do their chores, they didn't get supper. And if they continued to not do their chores, they didn't get breakfast. And if they continued to not do their chores, yes, they still had to go to school, but they weren't getting a lunch when they got there. But then the school system started interrupting and feeding them anyway, which messed up the system. But the point was, we tried to follow this literally to say, if you're part of this family, 
You have responsibility to work. And I do want to say to you parents, you need to redouble your efforts in this area. I didn't want to put this in my notes. I did tentatively add it, and if I chickened out, I wouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. The reason I didn't want to say it is I didn't want to sound like that grumpy old guy. I didn't want to sound like my dad. <laughs> but I can't help but point out that this current generation, the generation that is coming up to take over the world right now, doesn't know how to work. We've lost the sense of a biblical work ethic. And I say that as someone who comes from the post-hippie generation that we didn't learn how to work. Guess what? Because we didn't learn how to work, our kids don't know how to work. It's getting worse. And so Paul addresses this to the entire community of believers and says, you need to hold these people who are refusing to work, you need to hold them accountable. I'm going to start with the parents because that's where you learn. If you don't learn to work by the time you're 8 or 10, you're never going to be able to learn how to work when you're 18 or 20. You need to learn to work to become what God created you to be. Most commentators say that the language here isn't formal discipline. Our mind goes to like excommunication. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Most commentators think he's not talking about formal church discipline done by the elders of the church. They think that he's talking about more of an informal discipline done by the members of the church. That, that okay, they've been warned by the teachers, they've been warned by the leaders, they've been warned twice by Paul now in writing. If they're not going to listen, then this community of believers needs to hold them accountable. You need to stop treating them like nothing's wrong, like their sin doesn't matter. In formal discipline, Jesus said that when a person is put away from the church, put out of the church, or excommunicated, you're to treat them as a tax collector and sinner. You're to treat them as an outsider. But interestingly, Paul says here in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You're still to regard him as a brother, but this is a brother who's in great danger. This is a brother who needs to be held accountable. And better you as people in the church, as his friends, as his co-laborers, that you address it and call them to repentance before the elders have to come and do it. Because the stakes get much higher then. Unrepentant refusal to work is worthy of both informal and ultimately formal church discipline. The goals of church discipline are three. To vindicate the glory of God, that the church is not to be made up of a bunch of lazy, non-working people. Secondly, the purity of the church as we reflect the glory of God. And thirdly, the restoration of the sinner. And that's what he's saying is, this is a brother, he's still within the church community, but you need to call him to repentance. It's not loving to facilitate sin. And it is true that sometimes in the church we facilitate the sin of laziness or of a refusal to work. But then interestingly in Paul's confrontation of the church in not holding these people accountable, he also indirectly points to the purpose and goals of our work. And the most important one that really jumps out at me here is that the purpose and goal of our work is to bless others. 
The reason you get up and go to work in the morning in God's kingdom is so that you are, can be in a place where you can give to and bless others. I see this in what Paul talks about in his own example. That's why he, he's not boasting here, but he brings up his own example to talk about what the purpose of his work was. His work, was his primary vocation was to preach the gospel and to teach and disciple and shepherd. But his secondary vocation, his tent-making vocation, was to make tents. That's what he did. He, 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 it was a blue-collar job. It was a hard job. And Paul says here, let me read those verses to you again, beginning in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Beautiful thing he's saying here. He said, we have a right as preachers of the gospel, as shepherds of the flock, we have the right to live off the support of the church. And he asserts that right here. He talks about it at length in First and Second Corinthians. He is very clear that those who preach the gospel should be able to live from the gospel. In other words, supported by the church so that they wouldn't have to have another job so that they could be free to preach and shepherd. But he, he says that I have that right, but I gave it up when I was with you. And I worked long, hard days as a tent maker to provide for my material needs and physical needs and for my associates. And why did I do that? So that I and my associates would not be a burden to you as a new developing church. He worked hard. He did two jobs when he was in Thessalonica, the work of the gospel and the work of tent making, so that he wouldn't be a burden to them because he loved these people. He wanted to see them grow and prosper in Christ. And so he sacrificed his right so that they could be blessed. Do you think about your work that way when you get up on Monday morning to go to work? I'm doing this so that I can bless other people? I hope so. I hope that the Lord is transforming your thinking that way. It'll change the way you look at Monday morning, I'm sure. Paul says to the working believers, you know, these loafers, these lazy people, they were doing the opposite of Paul. Paul sacrificed his right so that he could give. But they were refusing to work and then taking gifts from the other believers. Laziness is a failure to love your neighbor, to love your brothers and sisters. Paul says to the working believers in verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, I have to admit, when I first read that, I thought, how does that fit in the context here? Why does Paul throw kind of a general comment like that in the midst of this thing about working? And I realized, commentators helped me to do it, but I realized that there was, what he's saying there, he's talking about a particular kind of doing good, which is giving to the needy. He's saying, don't be discouraged. Don't grow weary in giving to the needy because these lazy people over here are draining all your resources. Because that's what it does. When you give to those who aren't genuinely needy, it discourages you. And honestly, you get cynical. I've worked in a church office for 30 years. You know the one place on earth that is the easiest place to get cynical about giving to the needy? It's in a church office. You know why? Because we get calls all the time from people passing through the community, people out on the streets saying, can you give us some money? We need help. And I hate to say this, I really do, but in my experience, eight times out of 10 at least, 
the person who's called is manipulating you. They're working churches. They're trying to get by without work. They're trying to get money for a drug, whatever, whatever they're trying to do. They're trying to manipulate the system so that they don't have to work. And after 30 years of that, you get pretty cynical when you pick up the phone and somebody says, can you help me out? I, I, you know, your first tendency is to roll your eyes. And I feel like this verse is written to me. It's written to you. Don't be discouraged. Don't grow weary in doing good. It takes work to find the truly needy because you know what? The people that are truly needy are often the last people to ask for it. But don't grow weary in giving to the needy because you know what? That's why you're working. That's why you're here. You're here to preach the gospel and give to the needy. How many times do the scriptures make that clear to you? You're here to preach the gospel and to give to those who are in need, to work, to serve them. The Bible teaches us to work to provide for our families, lest we be worse than an unbeliever, and to give to others. Do you remember what Paul, Paul is addressing some repentant sinners. There were there were thieves, people who had formerly been thieves. They'd made their living off of stealing from other people that were part of the Christian fellowship in the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes one verse. I love this verse. He writes one verse to those repentant thieves wondering what their life is about now. And listen to what he says to them in Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the, the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Talk about a perfect illustration of the work of sanctification, of transformation, that the grace of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, can take a thief who lives to steal from others and transform him into a productive worker and made in the image of God who works in order to give to the needy. And then he becomes truly Christ-like. Reminds me of what John Piper said in his book, Desiring God, I've quoted this many times. He says, listen to this. He says, there are three levels of how to live with things. Level number one is that you can steal to get. Level number two, you can work in order to get. Or level three, you can work in order to get, in order to give. You work in order to get things so that you can give things to those who are in need. He says, too many professing Christians live on level two, working in order to get things. Almost all of the forces of our culture urge them to live on level two. But the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. We work so that we are able to give. But then that brings me to just briefly the final purpose, the ultimate purpose of our work is to glorify God. We used to work to glorify ourselves. Now we work to glorify God. We don't work for the weekend. We don't work to win the rat race. We don't work to prove ourselves. We don't work to impress others. We don't work to gain acceptance from God. By grace, we work in thankfulness for the grace of God that makes it all possible to give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to close with the instructions that Paul gave to the servants in Colossae. He addresses them about their work, but what he says to them about their work applies to any of us about our work. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have saved us, but we know that we weren't saved just to be delivered from your wrath and eternal condemnation, but we were saved for a purpose. We are here for a purpose. Our lives have meaning and purpose because you have called us. You have given us a vocation, many vocations. You have called us to work so that we might give. Father, I pray that you would help us to resist the pressure, the, the, the powerful pressure of our culture that seeks to conform our minds and our hearts to the ways of darkness and emptiness and ultimately eternal destruction. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would transform us so that we might love Christ by loving others well. Thank you, Lord, for the calling you've placed upon us to, to be saved and to work for Christ's glory. We pray in his name. Amen.